So about a year and a half ago, uh, my parents took Sophia and Stella for a long weekend, which is a nice little refresher for Corey and I. And on Monday night, we picked the kids up, uh, and they went pretty much right to bed, so we didn't have time to talk with them. Tuesday morning, we get up, have breakfast together, and the kids are done. So we say, okay, go wash your hands in the bathroom, and we'll go ahead and clear the plates. So we clear the plates, get them all, wipe the table, and still, they're not out of the bathroom, but the water's done running, and there's some giggling going on. So we peek around the corner. What could be so funny uh, in the bathroom, right? And we peek around the corner, and both girls have their pajama bottoms, like, up to here, and they're going... And spitting in the sink. We're like, what is going on? And they turn around and they look. They say, look, mom, grandpa pants. They had spent that weekend with my parents. And my dad's morning attire is sweats halfway up to his nipples. And he does this thing like an old cat with a hairball. I, I remember it now growing up like this guttural sound. And so they're imitating him. Now, of course, yeah, it's an amusing story. But it's also an example of imitation. Flattery, so they say, right? Uh, now, now, my dad, just to set the record straight, has incredible qualities. He's extremely humble and loyal. He's hardworking and intelligent, compassionate. He always has a heart for the underdog. And in times, in time, I, I hope my kids come to imitate those qualities. Uh, maybe not so much his fashion sense or his morning routine. This evening, we're going to look at a text that encourages us to imitate God. To walk like God. That's a mind-blowing thing in itself, right? Um, it's not just imitating another human being, but it is imitating the Creator Himself. How is it that we imitate God? How is it that we walk like God? Jim, don't ask said, does God walk like an Egyptian? I don't think so. I, I, I don't know if he walks with a swagger in his gait. Uh, but from the very beginning of time, people have tried to be like God. They've tried to actually play God. Adam and Eve thought they were wiser than God, and they ate of the forbidden fruit, right? And a lot of good that did. Uh, many ancient kings thought themselves to be gods, or representatives of gods. Uh, even the followers of Jesus, James and John, when they came across some people who crossed them, they, they wanted to call down the wrath of God. But in our passage tonight, we learn that Paul has a different form of imitation in mind. No, we can't be all-powerful or omnipresent like God. We can't imitate those qualities. We can't imitate God's foreknowledge. We can't become Trinity all of a sudden, right? But we are not called to imitate or to walk like God's being. We're called to walk in His character. So would you stand with me as we read our text this evening? It is Ephesians 4, 25 through 5, 2. Paul writes to the Ephesians, Therefore, laying aside all falsehood, speak truth, each of you, with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as, as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. 
Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and malice be put away from you. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Would you pray with me? Lord, if we are to take this word seriously, it is mind-blowing. In fact, part of us just wants to say it's impossible and to tune out. Pray for your divine hand to touch us as we allow your word to seep into our hearts and our minds, as we allow it to change us. Teach us, Lord, what it is you would have us to know and to be from this text. Help us to have open minds and open hearts. Amen. You may be seated. I think a lot of times the Apostle Paul gets kind of a bad rap as that New Testament writer who likes to tell us what to do. People say things like, Paul, all he does is give us lists of rules. I thought it was saved by grace, and here he is telling us what to do. Do this and don't do that. Sometimes we preachers make the mistake of preaching Paul as if he were giving us a list of rules. Here's the application. Go home and do these things Paul says. But hear me say now, if I merely preach a list of moral rules, I am not preaching the scriptures. And I am not representing Paul well. The gospel, the good news, is not primarily about morals. Christianity is not primarily a religion of morality. It's about new life. New life we neither earned or deserved. A new life God gave because he loves us and wants us to live abundantly in his kingdom. Christianity is about Jesus. Certainly, when we are touched by the love of Jesus, when we are humbled, we are going to start living lives that reflect his character. Character, by the way, that we might call morally right. But there are lots of moral people in the world who don't know Jesus, who don't know the gospel. And there are no people moral enough to save themselves without Jesus. So, for the first three chapters of Ephesians, the only lists that Paul has been giving us are lists of gospel things, good news. He has lists telling us about God's love for us and lists about our identity in Christ and lists about the kinds of prayers that he prays for the church. We have lists of things that he longs the church to know and to remember. It's one of the most encouraging and awe-inspiring books letters in all of scripture in the beginning of chapter 4 Paul uses this verb to walk he says walk this way walk that way and it's almost as if he uses this verb to walk as a vehicle that takes us from point to point so in chapter 4 1 through 6 Paul says in short 
if God really chose us, really adopted us, Jesus really died for us and really reigns for us, if the Spirit really is the down payment of our inheritance, if we really are the temple of the, of the Holy Spirit, then we ought to walk differently. We ought to walk in unity. In 4, 7 through 14, Paul makes the case that we should grow up in Christ, walk in maturity. And then last week, in 4, 15 through 24, we are called to walk in truth. Here, at the end of chapter 4, in the first two verses of chapter 5, we are called to imitate God, to walk like Him. It's incredible, right? It, but it's not new. It's not new. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, for example, we are told to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. In other words, we're to be whole and complete in love and forgiveness. But even within this letter to the Ephesians, Paul has used language that should prepare us for this idea of becoming like God. So, for example, in verse 24, which we covered last week, it says this, Put on a new self, which is in the likeness of whom? Likeness of God. And it, we've been created. And by the way, that word created, we've been created in God's likeness. It's the same exact word from Genesis 1 where God created the world. It's the same exact word where we are created in the image of God in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. So it's evoking that in Christ, even though we are broken image bearers, it, it is Christ's ministry in us to start recreating us into the image of God. And it says that we are to be in the likeness of God, in righteousness and holiness and truth. So that, that's Ephesians 4.24. And I skip to Ephesians 5.1 and 2, and we have, Be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God, a fragrant aroma. Two powerful pictures of becoming like God, of walking in His likeness. And sandwiched in between these two verses, or these two sets of verses, are some examples of what walking like God might look like. First of all, Paul tells us, lay aside all falsehood. Let's face it, we have a problem lying. Okay, We have a problem with lying, with not telling the truth, because we have a problem with ourselves. All right, I see, I see the looks on some of your faces. Some of you even just woke up when I said that. How dare you? I don't lie. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. So do I. Why do we lie? Because we are extremely insecure. Because we are terrified that if we don't look out for ourselves on our reputation... No one else will. Uh, you might not be living a secret life, like have a family up in Canada or something like that. But if you've ever, you know, falsely presented yourself to make yourself look a little better, embellished a little bit here. Okay, I confess, my dad doesn't pull his stuff up to his nipples. He pulls his stuff up to here. But it was funnier if I said it up higher. But still, it, you, okay, but... Whenever we exaggerate the truth just a little bit, we're doing that for a reason, to make ourselves a little more likable, a little more interesting. Have you ever exaggerated a story or an example to make somebody look worse than you? That's another thing we like to do, is make ourselves look good by making someone else look worse. 
Or have you ever been caught maybe breaking a family rule or rule of the house by one of your children if you have kids and then you make up some ridiculous reason why that's okay for you? I'm just saying. I may do that from time to time. Now, I don't want to go down this road of, is it ever okay to lie? Like, what if the Nazis are at your door and you're harboring uh, you know, a fugitive? Is it okay to lie then? First of all, 2012, the Nazis are at your door. We have some serious problems. But uh, I, I don't want to go down that road. In fact, I kind of went down that road on when it's, a, you know, that kind of thing in the Sermon on the Mount series. So check it out. It's on iTunes, I think. Uh, you can go there. But what I want to focus on is, I think, what, what Paul is focusing on, on here in this, in this passage. The idea Paul is pushing here is the quality of life that we are to live when we live in Christ. It's, it's not about special circumstances, guys, like when your wife says, do I look good in this? Like, there's just no way out of that one. It's, it's more about, it's not about special circumstances. It's about... How you normally live. We used the word last week, disposition. Your automatic response of thoughts, feelings, and actions whenever a circumstance comes into you. Or whenever you're faced with anything in life. What is your automatic disposition, your automatic reaction? And Paul is saying that to lay aside that, that part of us that wants to tell a falsehood to make ourselves look better or feel better. And to speak truth. Are we becoming... More and more the types of people who naturally are honest about ourselves and honest about one another. I know it's hard to get our minds around this. It's, wait, Chris, you just said if you're preaching a list of rules that you are not preaching scripture right. So let me break this down. Paul isn't giving us empty rules here. This is a gospel opportunity. Behind this ethic of not lying is the theological meat of the gospel. So we might look at it like this. Don't falsely represent yourself anymore because in Christ you don't have to. See how that's good news? You don't have to anymore because in Christ that's where you find your identity and your worth. You're free to speak truth and love to one another. And just when we start to think this passage is all about us, we're reminded that this call to lay aside all falsehood has a communal element. Paul says that we're to lay aside all falsehood because we're actually members of one another. Uh, the famous preacher John Chrysostom from the 4th century said, when the eye sees a serpent... It doesn't lie to the foot about that, right? That would make no sense because the body parts have to work together. If the eye sees a serpent, it's like, don't step there, right? You don't want to lie about that. So speaking the truth in our, in our church community is really important if we do it tactfully and with love because what I do and what happens and what I see affects what, how you live and your life affects how I live and we're in this thing together. But... There's more to this whole truth-telling thing than just our personal life and even just our church life. You see, this quote that Paul um, quotes here in this chapter, um, to speak truthfully to one another, to our neighbors, is actually a quote from the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah was a prophet when the Israelites were in captivity by foreign invaders. The people of Israel had rebelled against God, and so God withdrew his presence from their community, from their nation. And Babylon came and, and, and conquered them and took them into captivity. And in the midst of captivity, Zechariah spoke of a time when God's presence would return to the people. 
And at that time, when God came back, when God's kingdom would come, people, it says, would be truthful to one another. And so here at this crux of the message, Jesus came preaching that with his arrival, for example, Mark 1, 14, 15, Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus comes into town proclaiming his message, he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. That God, in Jesus, God's presence is actually there, and God's kingdom is beginning to break in. So in this passage, Paul is calling us to live into that reality, to live into the good news that the kingdom is beginning to break in. And even though the kingdom isn't fully here yet, so even though telling the truth is not going to make you a winner necessarily in all of the life's economy in this world, it is a sign. It is a sign when we are truthful and authentic It is a sign that the kingdom of heaven is breaking in. It is evidence that God reigns. Amen? Amen. Yes. Yes. Next, Paul moves on to the subject of anger. Before we get into what Paul says about anger, just want to break down anger slightly, just for a moment. In his book, Helping Angry People, president of Regent College and author Rod Wilson says this, Anger is an experience that occurs when a goal, when a value, when an expectation that I have or that you have is blocked. Or when your personal sense of worth is threatened. That evokes anger. And this experience of anger involves three things. It involves emotions. That's probably the one we're most familiar with, right? How does it feel? But it also involves cognition. It involves how we think about things. We have to perceive something to get angry about it. And it involves our bodies. Sometimes it may be punching doors or something like that. But oftentimes it's just how your body feels. Your body will not lie to you. Now you might feel like, I'm, not, I'm a guy, I'm uh, disconnected from my emotions. Think about this for a moment. Last time you got angry, how did your body feel? Where do you, where do you feel anger in your body? I get tight right here. And my scalp gets tight. And if I'm angry for too long, right here, sometimes I can't turn my neck. Right? And... That might be similar for you, but we all kind of carry our anger, our emotions in different places in our body. So oftentimes if you go to a good counselor and that counselor might ask you, where are you experiencing this emotion in your body? Because your body won't lie. So anger is a, is a holistic thing. It's, it's not just a feeling. It also involves your thought and it involves your body. Anger is not good or bad. What I often say about emotions, they're wonderful slaves, but horrible masters. God gave us emotions. God gave us anger, uh, the capacity to be angry. The scriptures tell us that God gets angry. Uh, The accounts of Jesus we have show examples of Jesus getting angry. We ought to feel anger at times. For an example, uh, human trafficking. When we read or see stuff like that where a, a human being, oftentimes a child, has been taken from their family or sold out of a family to be a product for another person, that is wrong. That should make you angry. I'm starting to get angry. Humans are made in God's image. 
They are our brothers and sisters. They are never objects to be bought and sold and used. They're not products. In fact, Paul expects that we're going to get angry from time to time. Here it says, uh, it says in the scripture, <clears throat> let me find it. Be angry and yet do not sin. Actually, a better way to translate that, maybe more true to the grammar, would be like this. Be angry if you're angry, and yet do not sin. It's, sometimes this has been misread into being a command, like, be angry, I command you to be angry, and yet do not sin. Yeah, good luck trying that one. Like that, those are hard things to keep in attention. But it's, it's the, the nuance is more like this. Be angry if you're angry, but do not sin. Be angry if you're angry, but do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Do not give the devil an opportunity, a foothold sometimes your translation might say, literally. Don't give him space in order to uh, work with that anger to bring you down. Yes, we get angry. Yes, certain circumstances ought to make us angry. But here, Paul's call for us who are in Christ is to put away anger. Now, why would that be? Why, if anger is natural, if we were created to experience anger, if Paul expects that we will get angry from time to time, if there are certain things that ought to make us angry, why would Paul say, put away anger? I think it's because I've never met a person, including myself, who can properly wield anger. We might think our anger is righteous and well-informed, we might even think we have a right to be angry. You might have a right to be angry. But our sin nature <laughs> distorts anger. And it can be intoxicating. It can quickly turn from righteous anger to self-righteous anger. Anger can make us feel powerful. Anger is that thing that can often make us put up a shield against other people. To have a, you ever met someone with a chip on their shoulder? Not, that's not a bad person. It's a person who's been really, really hurt. And oftentimes people with a chip on their shoulder use that anger as a defense. You're not going to get close to me. I'm not going to get hurt again. And see, Paul knows this. He, maybe he's, I don't think he's a psychologist. I just think God knows what he's talking about when he uses servant Paul uh, <laughs> to write this. But I think that what's going on here is Paul is warning us that this, when we harbor anger and allow the devil to use that space in us, it brings us to places we ought not go. Anger makes us feel powerful. In sports, athletes oftentimes um, play with a, an edge or a chip on their shoulder. They use anger to motivate them, to make them more powerful. And once you start to feel more powerful because of your anger, it's really hard to let go. It feels good. So Paul knows this, and he quotes Psalm 4, and tells us not to let the sun go down on your anger. Now, not letting the sun go down on your anger is a great idea. But, if you're married and you've ever tried to take this passage literally, you may say to yourself, Paul doesn't know what the heck he's talking about. I know this may come as a shock to you, but after 14 years of marriage, Corey and I have had a few arguments. That's... Sorry to burst your bubble on that one. Uh, and, and trying to have a coherent conversation at 2 in the morning when you both have to wake up for work the next day and you've been crying and not... It, it's stupid! <laughs> Go to sleep! 
Set up a time to talk about it the next day when, you, when you're in a right way of thinking. Respect each other. Now, if you come to me for counsel, I might be a little nicer, but I'll still say basically, that's stupid. <laughs> Give each other some boundaries. I need, I'm learning that myself. Corey's better. Paul's word not to let the sun go down on our anger was actually kind of an ancient proverbial statement. Um, it's not necessarily the law. Like, oh, you know, I know some people that, you know, I was just really trying to settle this argument with my wife. I couldn't figure it out. I was trying to do it before sundown. And then pff, the, the idea, and it's a great idea, is to do what it takes to get rid of anger quickly. To get rid of anger quickly. That's the idea here. When you hold on to anger, it gives the devil space to work. Space to let anger turn into bitterness and revenge. It turns people we disagree with into enemies. And once we turn a person into an enemy, then they slowly become less and less human in our eyes. They're that person, they're that thing who did this to me. We're to stop stealing that's the third thing he talks about. In the ancient world, there were no labor unions. There were very few salary jobs, especially for the majority of the population that was working class. So you wanted to go to work, you just waited uh, for work to show up. And if they were doing a big building project, you could make yourself a slave to that and you would get paid, hopefully, your day's wages. And then when the work was done, you were done. And so people were desperate to try and make ends meet. And a lot of times they would steal something from the work side or grab a little piece of bread on the side of this and that. Stealing in the ancient world was a very, uh, very negative connotations. In certain cultures you could be, have a limb chopped off. Still is that way in some parts of the world. You could be killed for it. It's not to steal is one of the Ten Commandments in Jewish culture. Uh, so it was never like an okay thing to do, but it happened. And it happened because people were afraid that they wouldn't be taken care of. Stealing, at its core, is a lack of trust in God's provision. It's greed. It's not just for the poor. Look at Bernie Madoff and so many of the fallen bank CEOs who already had millions and billions of dollars but cut corners and cheated on numbers so they could just have a little bit more. Lust, power, and greed to obtain more. Uh, you might kind of roll your eyes at this one, check out. Maybe you don't steal candy bars from uh, the local store or lie on your financial statements. But how tempting is it in our day and age to steal music? Or to steal movies. Uh, oh, I just bought this new MP3 album, and uh, I'll just go ahead and rip it for you on a CD and give it to you, or email you, you know. It's the stealing. And for those of you who I know have, Laramie, who have tried to make your run at getting a, as a paid musician, uh, that's not cool. I know some people in the music and movie industry, and it's really hard on them when you, <laughs> this stuff gets stolen all the time. How easy is it not to declare that side job you did on your taxes? What about at work? When we steal from our bosses, when we waste time, and aren't being productive. Paul's point here is not so much about the morality of stealing as it is the admonition to get to work. He says, steal no longer. Like, that's the old way of life. That's kind of the Gentile underground culture, right? But now that you're in Christ, what I want you to do is actually get to work. You're created for good works. 
Uh, We're called to work. In chapter 2, we're called because we were created in Christ Jesus for good works that God created beforehand that we would walk in them. Right? We're, in, in Genesis 2, the first people are created to tend the garden. They're created to join in God's work. Work is good. We're called to work here in chapter 4 so that we will have means to share with others in need. So we're called to work not just for our own gains of happiness and greed, but so that we can have resources to give away. It's the anti-American dream. And that's what following Jesus is. That's the motivation here. Use your hands. Not, not necessarily literally, like computer guys. I don't use my hands very much in my job either. But, you know what I mean? Get to work. Like, don't you, the, the idea was in this passage, don't use your hands for stealing. Use them for work. And so the message to us is, use our, our, our work, our productivity to be a blessing to other people. Instead of being a drain, if we're able... We are called to work so that we can help those in the body of Christ. When we live generously, we are walking like God, who is supremely generous to his creation, both the righteous and the wicked. He sends the sunshine and the rain on all people alike. He's generous. Just a caveat. There are different seasons in life. There are seasons to pursue education. If you're called to a vocation or your heart is, I want to do this in life to be productive, the time isn't for you to, to maybe start working. It's, it's to be trained so that you can do that thing that you're called to do. There are seasons in work where you might, your calling might be to leave the workforce to, to raise a family or something like that. Um, just remember, those who have the education, who have work experience, we're responsible for what we know. How? Do, how is it you employ your education and your life experience? And is it for other people? There are seasons when we're too sick to work. There are seasons and callings when our work doesn't pay dollars and cents. All you volunteers know this. Homemakers know this. But you still have a lot to give. And for those entering retirement, you must know that you are valued even when you're not producing the things that the world values. You are needed. Your work in guiding and mentoring and sharing experiences and using wealth and personal connections for the good of your brothers and sisters, those are important things. Finally, Paul has talked about, what's he talked about? Lying? He tells us to tell the truth. He tells us to get rid of anger. It's dangerous. He tells us to stop stealing so that we can be generous. We can get to work and help one another. Finally, he calls us to check our speech. Let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth. That kind of sounds like really hokey, doesn't it? Let no unwholesome word leave thy lips. Well, let me blow up that idea for you. Actually, in the Greek, that word unwholesome, it's the same thing that you would use for like stinking rotten fish or decaying wood. It's let no crap come from your mouth, okay? And it's not necessarily talking about Swear words and things like that. Sticks and stones break bones, but words also hurt us. And they often hurt us more deeply on the inside than anything physical we often experience. 
Don't break people down with your rotten gossip and mean-spirited criticism. Don't scar people made in the image of God, people Jesus died to save with your silent treatment. Words are powerful. And this, this is what Paul is getting at here. Is Our speech can either be creative and build, or it can produce rotten, stinking results. And this is one of those areas, it doesn't matter what your position of authority is, how old you are. I hear it, I hear it in little kids. Thankfully, not so much with our little kids, but I hear it at the playground all the time. At a very young age, kids breaking each other down. And it doesn't get any better when we get older. It happens in the workplace, happens in our circles of friends. We've got to watch out for each other. When we hang out, and even though we're building each other up, we might be, in our conversation, breaking other people down. We've got to watch out for that. Call each other on it. Use your speech, rather, to build each other up in Christ. Use language to encourage and to grant grace and to plant seeds of hope. In fact, try this, if you have a bulletin and a pencil. Write down the names of two people that you can encourage before the sun goes down today. This, this time we will be literal with the sun going down thing. The, what are, who are two people that you could encourage before the sun goes down? I'll wait. Our, our ability to communicate is not just a gift. It's a privilege. It's a powerful privilege. Think about the ways you may have been either torn down by words or built up by words. So we've been given this great gift and a privilege in our speech and our language and our ability to build each other up. But if you're like me, I just kind of go with the flow. I don't purposefully think about that. But as I'm preparing for this message, I want to try the discipline of how could I encourage one person outside my immediate family every day? It is not hard to do. But you just have to be intentional about it. What would that look like if we were able to encourage each of us, whether it's 100 people, one person a day, 100 more people who are encouraged by a word of encouragement spoken through a disciple of Jesus? Things, things are that simple. Walking like God isn't rocket science. We have an image problem. We hear the preacher say, we're made in God's image. We're his beloved. Every week we hear this, but we don't really believe it. And even this preacher, the one preaching at you right now, even I have a hard time really getting it. I think I get it. And then the next week I realized, wow, I really didn't get it. I get it more now. And I think that's kind of the process of following Jesus is you get things more and more as it becomes a part of you. But we really need each other to build each other up. It's one thing to hear, to read something in Scripture, to hear a preacher say something, to hear, hear myself say it, that God loves you, you're created in His image. But where the rubber really meets the road is when one of you encourages me in a real way that's not just flattery, 
And think about those ways that maybe you've been encouraged. You could hear a message like this a hundred times, but when that one time when someone really encourages you, it puts meat to the message. We're called to build each other up with our words. In Isaiah 63, the people had rebelled against God. They were seeking idols. Uh, The rebellion grieved the spirit of God. Earlier in chapter 2, Paul tells us that we, the church, not just this one, but around the whole world, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. And when we lie, and when we harbor anger, and when we steal, and when we break each other down with our language, we grieve, we cause the Holy Spirit to experience grief. We break the Spirit's heart. And by the way, this implies that the Spirit is a person. I don't know how you sometimes, like Jesus is easy, like I imagine a guy in the first century, and God the Father, I don't know, no one's ever seen him. Moses saw his butt one time, but, but he's a little, I don't know, it's more of a fatherly figure. But the Spirit, what do you, what do you guys think of, like a spiritual amoeba? Or something? I mean, it's just like a gas or something. But the Spirit is actually a person. You have to be a person. You have to have a personality in order to be grieved. So just a little trinity in solution here in Scripture. Paul tells us to lay aside the old life Because when we live as though uh, we were dead, even after we've been made alive with Christ, we grieve the Holy Spirit. And if you haven't noticed, this whole thing, this whole Ephesians, and this whole life of ours in general, it's about relationships. Jesus is calling all of humanity to follow him in relationship. We're adopted into God's family. Adoption is relationship language. We grieve the Holy Spirit because we're in a relationship with the Holy Spirit. And we're to let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from one another because we're in relationship with one another. And we're to live rightly with one another. We're called to be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving each other just as God and Christ has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, just like children imitate their parents and their grandparents. Walk like God, walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. There's no cultural context that I need to unpack or no special word in the Greek that you need to understand. Relying on our freedom in Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are to obey. To be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving, in love. This is the good news that in Christ we can begin living this kind of life right now. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I want this kind of disposition that Paul speaks about in this letter. We want to be people who are naturally, Lord, so sure of who you are, of who we are in you, that our natural disposition is to be truthful and open and honest and not afraid. 
Lord, we want to be the kind of people who don't need anger to make us strong. But our inside, in our deepest core, quick to forgive, quick to listen and slow to speak. Lord, we want to be people who really believe you're in charge, really believe that you have our best in mind so that we don't have to constantly be conniving how to get the upper hand in dishonest ways. Whether it's stealing things or time. Lord, help us to be people of generosity. People who produce good relationships. Lord, thank you for forgiving us, even us, of the things that we've thought and said and done and left undone. And knowing what we are capable of and what you have forgiven us of, help us to be gracious with one another. Amen.